0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Beth. What a great start for our worship. The Lord is good, isn't He? I hope singing that last song it took you back to the day that Jesus called your name. Wasn't that a great day? What a what a life changing day that was. Um, so um, last night we had our uh, coffee house fundraiser for Jamaica, and uh, yes, absolutely. And and how can you tell I was there? I bought the T shirt. I bought the t-shirt, and I just wanted to say something about this. You know, um, there's not a lot that we do as a congregation. I know a lot of individuals in our congregation are very involved in doing international work, international stuff, supporting international ministries and doing good things that way. But as a congregation, there's not a lot that we do together. Last year, we didn't send a youth trip to Jamaica. We haven't had an adult trip uh, go to Guatemala or Honduras for a little bit, Um, and... uh, I was privileged in 2014 to go with our team to Honduras, our adult team, and, and be involved in our mission there in working in Brea. Um, it's a life-changing thing, it really is. And you hear anybody who goes on those trips, they come back and they tell you what a difference it makes in their life. And you realize the difference between our world and theirs. And one of the things that I saw in, in Honduras that really struck me was the fact that, that those people, the people who live there, the people who are born there and live there, uh, they, they have very, very little means of, of changing their circumstances. Employment was like over 80%, or unemployment was like over 80%. People who are born into poverty have no way of, of lifting themselves out of it. And so there is this cycle of despair. And the whole culture gets caught up in this cycle of despair, and we'd see, we'd, you know, on one side of the road, there'd be these, these wonderful villas behind high walls, gorgeous places, and then on the other side were all of these, these slovenly huts, people with no running water, cooking outside, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and that was just the reality, that was the norm, and there was nothing that they could do to improve themselves. But one of the things that I found to be the most amazing opportunities that we, we in North America, with our abundance of blessings, you know, one of the things that we can do is we can resource. We can go down and provide resources. So in Guatemala, or, or sorry, in Honduras, for example, we built a medical center and a school, and, and we helped that community with the, with the help of the church there to get on its feet and begin to do what it could. We created industry, you know, for, for people to be able to start a few businesses, bought them some, some garden clippers and things like that, and we, we tried to equip them so that they could, they could lift themselves up and, and try to improve their, their circumstances. And you know what? It was working. They, they can do that. If someone helps them, if someone gives them the resources to do that. Well, I, I, was, I was knocked off my feet last night at the Jamaica fundraiser, and I don't know where I've been for the last 10 years, but, but I guess I wasn't paying attention to what we're doing in Jamaica But we've been sending a youth team down there every year, and many of you have been there and you've participated in these projects, but Jim spoke last night about the school that we have been helping the community of Comfort Hall to build and equip and get up and running. And this year, they're celebrating the fact that 37 kids who were not able to go to school before are able to be in school. And education is a key for kids and and people being able to help themselves out of the cycle of poverty. And these are children, these are kids who had no opportunity to go to school before until the community of Comfort Hall, with the help of our church and others, built a school. And I'm sitting here thinking, we built a school? That's awesome! That's awesome! We built a school. You built a school. Some of you cleared the ground. Some of you moved the stones and cut down trees. Some of you were involved in that. Some of you, I don't know what you do, you paint, whatever. But one of the things that we did there, among other things, is we built a school. We helped to build a school. And you know what? We need to do good because we can. We have the resources to bless those who don't. We need to do this. And I was struck by that last night. And with the projects that they're working on this year for Jamaica, I really want to encourage us. You know, maybe you've supported it in the past when your kid went to Jamaica. We did that. Both of our guys have been to Jamaica. Cameron and Chelsea have both been there. They've been on the mission trip. Maybe you've supported it in the past. But this is a thing that we as a congregation are behind. And so I want to encourage you to think about how you can support this mission this summer. Let's hit every one of these goals and surpass them. There's no way that just the team of families that are sending their kids this year can do that. But this is something we own as a church, as a church family. We can make a huge difference. They're they're looking at building a cottage so a teacher can actually come and live in residence and the school can get certified by the government and get funded by by the government. And they need our help to get there. And we have the means to do it. So if you weren't there last night, go into the gym after the service. Go by the booth, the Jamaica booth. Pick up one of these cards that explains all of the fundraising opportunities. Buy the t-shirt, right? And uh, next Sunday, let's all wear our t-shirts. All right? But get behind the Jamaica project. That would be awesome. Let's take a second to pray as we get into our message for today. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God of love, tremendous love, that you have loved us and now in turn you send us out to love others. Yours is a gospel of love, a gospel of restoration, a gospel of reconciliation, just as we've been singing about. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the hope of the world. You're the answer to all of the world's problems. We know that and believe that. And just as you are working in our life, We know that you desire to work in the lives of our families and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and beyond our reach into the world. Lord, we're thrilled to be part of your kingdom and part of your mission on earth. We ask to be filled by your Holy Spirit. We pray that that he would continue to do a transforming work in each one of us and collectively as a congregation. Would you stir our hearts for greater things, greater things for your kingdom. Would you stir our hearts for greater sacrifice? Lord, we are so blessed. We have such abundance. We have so much more than we need. Help us to understand that and see that. Help us to give ourselves away because that's what you did for us. We ask for your blessing upon our time together in your word. uh, And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us have open ears and hearts to whatever it is that you have to say to us today as we gather in your presence and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start off by going back to something I said two weeks ago. As we're into this latter half of Ephesians and looking at Paul's application of the first three chapters... The first three chapters, he talks about who we are as the people of God. And then in the last three chapters, he just cycles over and over again, touching base with who you are and then some concrete, practical expressions of what that looks like. And that's what we're going to be kind of talking about today. But I said this last time. I said that the essential of Christian ethics is this. And I wonder if you can fill in the blanks for me. Do anybody remember what I said? Our blank of Christ flows from our blank in Christ. Anybody remember what that is? Imitation and identity. So what is it? Say it for me. Put it in the sentence. Survey says, spot on. Way to go. That's right. Our imitation of Christ flows out of our identity in Christ. And that's that's a really important principle for us to remember. A really important principle because it is Paul's point. And it is the key to understanding the Apostle Paul's theology. It comes over and over and over again in all of his letters. If you read the, if you read the epistles, you'll notice that Jesus does, or Paul does not quote Jesus very much. He really doesn't. He doesn't refer to Jesus' example or Jesus, Jesus' teachings very much. He has an awful lot to say, wrote more of our New Testament than anybody else, But the key to understanding him is that he continually refers to us as believers being in Christ. Jesus is always there. Jesus is always referenced. But it's Jesus in us as we're living out the reality of who we are in Christ. Paul spent three chapters in his letters to Ephesians. The first three, the first half of the letter, trying to help them understand who they are before he ever gets to saying what that should look like in real, practical terms. And that is so key. It is so key because you and I need to know who we are, who God has called us to be, who Jesus says that we are. You see, we, we've been talking about the the, the main ethic is to live a life of love like Jesus did, and give ourselves away for others. Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. That's what we're supposed to be doing. I was at a vision ministry conference a little while ago, and Dave Arnold was one of the speakers from a church in Hamilton, and he said this. He said, "Jesus is not just to be worshipped, he's to be imitated. He's to be imitated. We are called to be imitators of Jesus, to, to walk as he walked, to live as he lived. But more than that, we do it because he is in us and we are in him. As we said a couple of weeks ago, if we try and imitate Jesus in our own strength, one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to become self-righteous and pharisaical and judgmental of others, or we're going to fail miserably and become pretty discouraged. But Jesus in us can produce himself out of us. And so our main understanding and focus, and Paul's main point over and over and over again, is here's who you are, so live like it. So live like it. Here's who we are. Every week we celebrate that when we do communion. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, where he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf." Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The cup that we take, the bread that we take, it is participation in Christ. Participation in Christ. And that word participation is that wonderful Greek word koinonia. Koinonia. We often use it to refer to fellowship. And and we talk about how we as a church should have koinonia with one another or fellowship with one another. And it's such a rich word because it means deep intimacy. Deep intimacy. Not just superficial connection or, yeah, we kind of, no, no. We are, if we have you, if we are one with one another, if we are participating with one another in the life of God's church at Forestbrook, we have deep intimacy with one another. And when we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we are being reminded that we are in Christ, that we have participation in Christ. We have deep intimacy with Him. He is in us and we are in Him. We are His We belong to Him. We don't belong to anyone else. We are in Christ. And so as we take communion today and we take of the body and of the blood of our Lord Jesus and we remember His sacrifice and what He did in order to make us His own, let's do it with thanksgiving, but let's also do it with a reminder that we are His. That he is in us and we are in him. And we participate with him. And after we do communion, we'll come back and we'll talk about how we put that into practical practical terms. If the ushers could come forward, I'll pray for the communion. And let's uh, do that. Again, Heavenly Father, we pause and bow before you. At the table, the table that we have participation in, this is your table You have set it for us and welcomed us to it. You have provided the feast that is before us, the body and blood of Jesus that gives life, that takes away sin, our sin and the sins of the world, the feast that purifies, the feast that heals, the feast that sanctifies, the feast that restores. At this table where you invite us to gather, you meet our every need. You remind us that we are loved. You remind us that no matter who we are or where we've come from or how broken we are, that you are greater and that your love is greater and that you have bought us with the very price of your own blood and we are yours. Thank you for that. How can we take the bread and the cup with anything other than thanksgiving in our hearts? We love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing upon this communion service. We are your people, called by your name. and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again, you guys. So today we're talking about Ephesians chapter five, verses three to 14, and uh, Paul's message to, uh, to, to the church in Ephesus and to us to live as children of light. And again, this was Paul's cycle. Paul's cycle over and over again, he repeats it numerous times in the letter, he repeats it in every letter, um, that know who we are, and so live differently, live out of the reality of who we are. So he stresses our identity first, and then he gives concrete examples of how we should live out of that identity. Before we get into that, though, I think it's important for us to take a moment just to talk about a, a principle for how we understand Paul's writings. Uh, We need to understand context. Paul was writing to a very particular world. He was writing to the world of his day. That was the world that he knew. And we actually, through history, can understand a fair bit about that world. And it wasn't a pleasant one to live in. And the reason that this is important is because it's reflected in the way Paul chooses his concrete examples. So when we get into the household codes here in a couple of weeks, we'll talk a bit more about this, but obviously, an obvious example of that would be Paul's reference to slavery and the relationship that, that masters, the heads of the households, should have with their slaves. At the time that Paul was writing, a third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. That's not the case today. So he was writing to a very specific world, and, and the specificities, is that the right word? the specificness of that world, comes out in his letter. So one of the challenges that we have in New Testament hermeneutics is understanding what in the Bible is descriptive and what in the Bible is prescriptive. And that's a big challenge. And we we get into all kinds of debates and discussions about that because we don't necessarily, either we don't pay attention to that at all or we kind of mix and match that a little bit. But it is a reality. The reality is that Paul was writing to a very specific world. It is the incarnational nature of our scripture. That it comes, the whole thing, Old Testament and New Testament, comes written in a very specific time, in a very specific context, to a very specific people, and everything that is written reflects that specificity. I said it. I got it right there, that time. Try that, that's hard sometimes to say that kind of stuff, Um, but that's an important principle, and so what we try to do is say, okay, so what is Paul Paul saying that is reflective of his culture, and what do we learn from that, and what is he saying that is directive to us, Um, and that's a challenge for us, and that's something that we want to pay attention to. That's just a hermeneutic principle that I want to share as we get into that, because when we look at Paul's world, the world that he wrote to, uh, it helps us understand uh, a bit better why he says what he says. This book, uh, uh, Daily Life in Ancient Rome, I went back and I've been reading through that for this series. Uh, and anytime you read any kind of history about, uh, about that world, and we actually know an awful lot about it, uh, the, uh, one of the, the Romans, um, uh, a, uh, he wasn't a historian, he was an aristocrat, but he wrote 257 letters that we still have uh, available to us today. And he was a contemporary of Paul and John, writing at the, time, the later time of Paul and writing in the time of the Apostle John. And these letters give us a lot of insight into what life was like in ancient Rome. And so ancient Rome, of course, was the culture, the dominant culture, and that was reflected in all of the cities that were Hellenized, like Ephesus. Like Ephesus. It would have been a Roman city, and it would have reflected much of the same culture, just like you can go you know, anywhere in North America, in Toronto, or New York, or, or Boston, or any of those cities would all reflect our Western culture. They would all have their uniqueness, but they would all have the same basic reflection of values of our Western culture today. It was the same in the Roman Empire with all of those Hellenized cities. And these cities were very crowded. They were congested. They had narrow streets and tall buildings. Uh, They were unsanitary. People who lived in that world lived with a, a, a daily fear of death because you could die at any moment. They were violent, there were, there were gangs and thieves and robbers. You could get killed in the streets. Any kind of illness, any kind of infection, any kind of disease could, could take your life. They lived with a daily threat of that. It was an incredibly superstitious culture. Deeply pagan with all of their pantheon, but more than that, they lived in a fear of their gods and they lived on on a nice edge of trying to make sure that they appeased their gods so that they wouldn't get tipped over by the fates into disaster. Divorce was epidemic. Epidemic. Adultery was so common. Prostitution. Sexual You know, deviancy and sexual sin was just everywhere. The book mentions that divorce was so common that it wasn't uncommon at all for individuals to have three or even five marriages and in one case, one individual is referenced as having had ten marriages. Marriages were often for economic reasons or convenience or political or family alliances. Very rarely were they for love or relationship. And as a result, many couples were childless. The Roman government three times tried to legislate moral reform, and every time it failed. It was just a dark, dark society. Deeply demonic, deeply distorted, deeply troubled. That was the world of the Roman Empire fear, superstition, and it pervades Paul's writings. It comes out over and over and over again because that was the world he lived in. That was the world that he lived in. So after having just said at the start of chapter 5 that we are to live a life of love, be imitators of Jesus and live a life of love and give ourselves away for others just as Jesus gave himself away for us as a sacrificial offering, He says this in verses 3 to 5. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this. No fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and his God. What a sharp left hand turn when you think about it, right? After what he just finished saying. And he gives these two triads as his first venture into these ethics fornication, impurity, and greed, and obscenity, foolish talking, and coarse joking. What, what's he getting at here? What, 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 do these, what do these triads have in common? Well, when you get into the original language, you'll see that the word, that these are strong words, fornication and impurity and greed, refer to being desensitized in our, in our very soul and our spirit and having a lust and a covetousness for more. That, that, that it was all about satisfying the self through gratifying the cravings of the flesh. And you, if you remember in Ephesians earlier, in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, when he reminds the church, he says, look, we were all like that once. That was the way that we lived. That was our way of life. That we, all of us, were living in a way that we were seeking to gratify the cravings of the flesh and its evil desires. Now why is that? Why is, is he just being on his high moral horse here and kind of you know, calling down people for, for was he a prude? Or is there a reason for it? it was, is it because that this society was so twisted and so distorted? and remember, when we talked about that part of Ephesians, people's lives were so hollow, they had no meaning, they had no purpose, they had no hope. And so they lived daily simply to satisfy the flesh, because it was live for today because tomorrow we die. And it was that kind of a culture that he was writing to. And he was saying, don't do that. That's not proper. That's not not fitting for who you are as children of light. Obscenity, foolish talking and coarse joking can it be that sometimes, you know, they always say that humor has its dark side, right? The put-down humor and all of those things, that there's, there's an unhappiness in us that gets reflected in, in the way that we use our speech and even the jokes that we make. We're covering up for something. And what Paul is saying to us here today is, is that, you know, remember that, that it matters what we do with our bodies. It matters what we do with our bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. He made us sexual beings and he intended for us to glorify him in all of our being, including who we are as sexual beings. It matters what you do with your body. For them, it was just a matter of giving themselves away and and for a momentary satisfaction for that moment just to fulfill the, the desires of the flesh seeking some kind of escape from the dreariness and the fear of their everyday existences. And it matters what we say. It matters what we do with our mouths. It matters what we do with our speech. It really does. The scriptures say that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what comes out of our mouths is a reflection of what's going on inside of us. And so paying attention to our speech is actually a way that we can guard our hearts. It's a way that we can listen to ourselves and and say, am I hearing myself? What is that saying about about who I am? What is that saying about what's going inside of me? What is that saying about what's going on in my heart? It matters what what I say. It matters what I do with my speech. Going on, he says, in chapters 6 to 10. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. Here it is. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Now here's what I want us to focus on. He says, you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. He doesn't say you were in the dark. He says you were the darkness. You were participants. You helped make this world a dark place. You were part of the darkness. You were dark and you were part of everything that god that had rained down god's judgment upon the world you were part of that that's who you were remember he's done that over numerous times that's his cycle he says here's who you are you're not this anymore now you're this you were that but now you're this and he says you were darkness but now in the lord you are light you're not that anymore now you're light so live as children of light. Live in a way that reflects that. Live in a way that reflects who Jesus has made us to be, is what he's saying. Now we are light. So just as we contributed to the darkness, we are to contribute to the light. He's not saying, now you are in the light. You're not the same person who now just has a different set of beliefs Or the same person who now just behaves a little bit differently or now has some religion. You're fundamentally, irreversibly a different person than you were. You now have Christ in you. You are now a born from above, begotten child of God. A holy human. That's who we are. He says, so live like it. Live into it. Learn what pleases the Lord. Learn how to live this life. Learn how to live into the light and be part of the light and be part of, of God's bringing light to the world because Christ is in you. And he goes on and he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, "Sleeper, awake! Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." And here again he says something that's really important. We don't want to miss it. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Light doesn't just expose the darkness, it transforms it. It transforms it. It doesn't just expose it. The light in you is not meant to simply expose the darkness as if we can stand in front of someone and say, there you go, sinner, I expose you. Because the light in me is shining on all of your ugliness and all of your sinfulness and there you go. But the light in me because it's Jesus in me doesn't just expose he transforms he transforms he calls light out of that darkness evil is overcome by good and we are participants in that this is the work of the light this is what it is to live as children of light to reflect Jesus, to, live, to let Jesus live in us in such a way that all that we have in contact with, all that we come in contact with, are not just exposed, but are transformed. Are changed. Because of what they see in us. Because of what they see in us. Light exposes the darkness, absolutely. But it transforms it as well. I love reading about the life of Jesus and looking at his example. I know all of you do as well but one of the most amazing things and startling things about him was that he went to places where where righteous people would never go and he would touch unclean people he would hang out with prostitutes and with lepers and with tax collectors and sinners and he didn't just expose them he transformed them. He transformed them. We'll talk about how he did that in a couple of minutes. I just want to give you a chance to reflect on something. If we are called to live as children of light, and not just expose the darkness around us, but actually to transform it, how might the Spirit be wanting you to contribute to the light in your world? I want to give you a minute or two. Sheldon's going to come up and, and play. But let will just take a couple of minutes to think about that. How might the Spirit be wanting you to contribute to the light in your world? Take a few minutes to think about that. Thanks, Sheldon. When you think about it, is it any wonder that the early church was able to transform the world and transform the Roman Empire? If that was the world that they lived in, to come to Christ and to suddenly have hope and purpose and meaning and love and community... To suddenly have those things and to breathe those things into their social circles and into their families. Is it any wonder that 5,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 could be added to the church daily? And that within a short period of time, that early church transformed their world. Bringing love into a loveless world bringing light into a dark world. We lost a few giants in our world recently. Rachel and I were talking about this last night at the fundraiser. Just in, in the recent past, Eugene Peterson, uh, many of you know from uh, writing the message, uh, Rachel Held Evans, tragically, uh, an author, a progressive, evangelical uh, thinker, passed away at the age of 37, um, just a week or so ago. And then just this past week, Jean Vanier, uh, the founder of L'Arche. And each of these, in their own way, were voices to the church of our generation calling us to pay attention, calling us to wake up, to look at our witness in the world, to look at our place in the world and say, Church, (laughs) pay attention. Pay attention. What does it look like to be light in a dark world? It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. Last week, I had the privilege of doing the uh, funeral service for George Boutros, Mahar's dad. And I was really struck by the things that Mahar and his sister, um, Mira, said about about, uh, George. Mahar said... My dad lived a life of sacrifice and gave himself away for the family and for others. And his sister said, it was easy for me to believe in a God of love because I saw him in my dad every day. I thought to myself, wow, if that's your legacy... If that's if that's if that's your legacy if that's the way you're remembered for having lived 88 years on this planet you've lived well. You've lived a good life. I'm sure there's lots of other stuff that could be said about him but that's the way he was remembered by his family. We remember love. We remember sacrifice. We remember generosity. These are the things of Jesus. These are the things that are of the spirit of Jesus. After Jean Vanier passed away, I, I was just doing some... He's always been a bit of a hero of, of mine. He's written a book on community, which is, is, is second to none. But he had an interview two years ago with Nikki Gumbel from Alpha. And uh, Alpha has an international conference, a leaders conference, where they bring people from all over the world, and they have this conference to just talk about the church and what's going on in the world, and how the church can, can respond to what's happening in the world. Um, and I think you guys just got back from that, didn't you? That's right. Um, and so they, they had this conference two years ago, and Nikki Gumbel at this conference interviewed Jean Vanier, and it's about a 20-minute interview, and it's back up on YouTube, so I watched it. And Jean Vanier was a remarkable man, but he said some things that are so important for us to hear. And one of the things that he said is this. To really live the kingdom, you have to work at it. Because love does not come easily. Love does not come easily. And he said this. Jesus did not come to judge, but instead to tell people they are loved. To tell people they're loved. Love is what transforms. It wasn't wasn't the holiness, the righteousness, the, the sinlessness of Jesus that changed people. It was his love. And his love led them to him so that he could change them. We are in Christ, Christ is in us. We are living as children of light, in the midst of darkness, meant to participate, not in darkness anymore, but in light now, being part of the light of the world, Christ in us, shining light and transforming the darkness that's all around us, wherever you find it, your workplace, your neighborhood, your community, your school, your university, wherever you are, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you are called to live as a child of light So what kind of Christ will people see in you and in me? What kind of Jesus will they see? If they know that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us and we are, we are Christians, what kind of Jesus do they see in us? Do they see the same kind of Jesus that we see in the Gospels? Or do they see some distorted view of Jesus that really doesn't represent Him well at all. You are in Christ. You are the light in your world. What kind of Jesus will others find in you and in me? What kind of Jesus will they find in us, Forestbrook? What kind of light do we cast into the darkness of our world. That's what it means to live as children of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how good you are. You love us through and through, from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet. Lord, you just love us, and you know our frame. You know our... That we, uh, that we need you. And we're grateful for that. We thank you that you don't deal with us according to our sins, but as a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who love you. And we do love you. And we know that your mercies are new every morning, and we're grateful for that. And as the ancient prayer says, Lord, uh, forgive us our sins for the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. As your people. We're excited about what you're showing us and what you're doing in our midst and what you're saying to us and how your Holy Spirit is, is working to, to revive and renew not just this church at Forestbrook, but your church everywhere. Because you love the world that you gave your son for. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us with the, the love of Jesus. Fill us with the light of Jesus. Fill us with the fruit of your presence. Burn our hearts with the passion for those who are in darkness. That we can be light to them. Not in a judgmental or condemning way. But in a saving, restoring, loving way. Just as Jesus has done for us. Would you change your world? through your church, for the glory of Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.